We're going to jump right in. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn to Matthew 8. We're going to be looking at verses 23 to 27. Are you moving this? <laughs> Good. <laughs> I was ready to hit my head on it. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please, there's some out at the Welcome Center. We'd love to give you a Bible this morning. And uh, so stop on your way out and get one of those great Bibles. Jesus calms the storm. Matthew eight twenty three through 27. And it reads like this. Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up, rebuked the wind and waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now I have a question. How many of you have heard that story before? Let me see your hands. Yeah, almost 100% of you. Chances are good. Could I have that coloring book thing, please? Uh, chances are good that if you grew up anywhere near a church or a Sunday school, this passage was right up there. It's so well known that I was really tempted to print out a coloring page, give you a box of Crayolas, read this morning's passage, and send you all merrily on your way home. Have you ever noticed that some passages, some verses, and entire Bible stories are so well known, they're read, they're reread, they're sermonized, books are written about them, that they're really easy to just kind of skim over. And I'm talking about really, really, really important uh, stories in the Bibles, not just the ones that I normally skip over, the lists of names in like Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, we think we know these stories. We've heard them so often that they've become, I hate to say it, humdrum, just words. We kind of tune them out as our minds begin to wander. We think we know these stories and forget that this scripture is God's word to us. So before we dive into this morning's message, I'd like to remind you of something that Paul and Timothy have to say about scripture. And I'm going to be looking very briefly at Hebrews 4.12 and 2 Timothy 3.16, where we're reminded that Scripture is alive, it's active, and according to Hebrews 4.12 and 2 Timothy, it reminds us that Scripture is God-breathed. It penetrates us. It judges us. It reveals thoughts and attitudes it teaches us, it rebukes us, it trains, etc., etc., etc. The Bible is God speaking to us. And it continues to breathe life into us because it's the living, breathing Word of God. 
Do we really believe that? Do we get it? Are we allowing God's word to transform us? Let's pray. Father, God, may your word penetrate our hearts and our lives this morning. I pray that within this familiar story, that you would bring us face to face with you, Jesus. And I ask this in your name. Amen. How many of you like to swim? A couple of you. Awful thing to ask on a day this cold. Now, while I waited among cows in many creeks, there weren't many community pools when I was a child. I didn't learn to swim until my freshman year of college. Learning another language and learning to swim are, I'm told, much easier to do when you're a kid. Because adults know that men weren't created with gills. There was a fear of drowning that was deeply ingrained. And even now, when swimming with friends, I kind of prefer to be somewhere where my feet can touch the bottom or I'm close enough to the edge of the pool that I can grab on just in case. And I always said, swimming was okay, but I wouldn't be caught dead jumping into the middle of a lake. Which brings me to Indiana. Warsaw, Indiana, to be exact. Northern Indiana, where glacier lakes are found around every bend in the road. And there I was, on a boat, in the middle of 200-acre Pike Lake, average depth 20 to 40 feet. With so many lakes, most Hoosiers that I knew had their own pontoon boats. And this particular boat belonged to a co-worker. It was a warm, sunny Sunday afternoon. Everyone was in the water. Well, not everyone. I was catching rays, reading a book in the middle of that big lake. And my friends were calling, hey, Denny, jump in. Come on, the water's fine. Yeah. And so peer pressure finally kicked in. One of them said, just put on a life belt. You'll be fine. So I picked up a life belt. I put it on. And I did the one thing I swore that I would never do. I jumped into the middle of Pike Lake. And sure enough, that life belt helped me bob to the surface just before it slipped off and floated away from me. Now remember, I could swim. I wasn't far from the boat. But at that moment, the only thing I knew for certain was that I was going to die. And I definitely didn't want to. Fear. I was frozen with fear. And I doubted I could make it to the boat. Fear, doubt, I was going to die simply because I doubted that I could swim that very short distance. Going back to Matthew eight twenty-three to 27. Last week we talked about Thomas. 
it's easy for us to call him Doubting Thomas. And I can understand these disciples that were on that storm-tossed boat. When fear strikes, real gut-level fear, reason vanishes, and doubt sets in. Now, if I were a reporter investigating this particular event, there are a couple things I'd want to know. First of all, I'd want to know what exactly was happening. And our scripture passage this morning answers that, well, at least on the surface. We know what happened. Jesus and his disciples are on a boat, and a storm blows in. It's raging all around them. And the disciples are afraid, and they call out for help. Jesus tells them they need more faith. Calms the story, calms the storm, end of story. And Pastor Kevin wanted me to call this sermon Little Faithers. I'm not doing that, Kevin. <laughs> the same story that we've heard since we were children. It's a story we think we know. But as I was getting ready for this sermon, I discovered there's a whole lot more to this story. One of the things I'd want to know is, where is this taking place? So glad you asked. The Sea of Galilee is actually a freshwater lake. It's approximately 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. It's fed largely by water from the Jordan River. And for those of you, again, who have been around church most of your lives, you'll understand that Jesus' ministry happened largely around this particular body of water. I'd also want to know when this little sailing excursion took place. Now, while we've read Matthew's account of this event, both Mark and Luke tell the same story nearly verbatim. Anything that's chronicled in the Bible is obviously important, and we should pay attention to it. When an event is mentioned numerous times from different writers, it's a real good idea to take very careful notice of what's being said. Matthew's writing is always concise. There's logic, there's order to his writing, as you'd expect from a tax collector, someone who was held accountable for bookkeeping. Prior to this boat trip in Matthew 8, Matthew chronicles some key events. In fact, he lists them in chronological orders. He begins with an amazing, lengthy sermon that we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Then Matthew recalls, following that, a man is healed of leprosy. Then moving from there, from the mountainside to the town of Capernaum, the servant of a Roman soldier is healed. Then a fisherman's mother-in-law is healed, and moving on, many sick people are healed. Small groups of people are growing into throngs, Catch on to those words that I took directly from Matthew's gospel. Words like, then, following that, moving on, growing. Matthew's observation is leading us methodically and chronologically through the early days of Jesus' ministry. And so is this investigating reporter 
I'd have learned that there were a series of events leading up to this storm at sea. Well, as a reporter, I'd also most definitely want to know more about who was on this sailing adventure. We know that at least four of the men on board that ship were familiar with water. Peter, Andrew, James, and his brother John had been hand-selected and called to follow Jesus. These guys knew the waters. They were fishermen. They fished the waters of the Sea of Galilee. We don't know for sure the occupations of all the other 12 disciples, Uh, There are traditions that teach that several others may have been fishermen as well. The fact that most of those early disciples grew up in towns in Galilee, along the Sea of Galilee, along the Jordan River, would indicate that many of them had knowledge of the weather in the region. And the fact that major storms could and did blow in without warning. Certainly, Peter... James, John, and Andrew would have experienced stormy weather in the past. And of course, Jesus was on that boat. The climax of Matthew's story, he calmed the storm and asked, where's your faith? Who, what, where, when? Every high school kid who has ever taken a writing class would ask those questions and would come up with answers very similar to mine. And with that information, you have basically received the Sunday school lesson that I could have taught if I were teaching kids in any kids' club, any kids' church, anywhere on this planet. Just the facts, Jack. But, however, there is one more W question that takes a little bit more probing, and that is, why? Why the boat ride? Why this group of people? Why would three writers of New Testament Gospels journal this event in their writings? And how comes John didn't include the event in his Gospel? While this account of Jesus calming the stormy seas can be taken just as written, I think it's important that we see the event in its context. A great deal had happened in the short amount of time since Jesus had appeared on the scene. An inner core group of 12 men had been called as disciples. You know them by name, Peter, James, John, Thomas, etc., etc., Judas. But there were others. According to Luke 10, there were at least 70-plus followers who Jesus sent out to minister. Many of these people would have been with him for the Sermon on the Mount. They witnessed the healing of the leper. They undoubtedly heard about the long-distance healing of the servant of a Roman, no less. Peter would have been keenly aware that Jesus had healed his mother-in-law. Now, if these stories of healings have become all too familiar to us, not so for Peter, James, John, etc. 
Put yourselves in their place this morning. All of this was new. This stuff was amazing. It was hard to process. Dare I say it? Hard to believe? These were good Jewish boys who had been memorizing Torah since they were children. They could recite passage after passage about the coming promised Messiah. And everything, all of what they were seeing firsthand, had to be mind-boggling. They were seeing those Old Testament promises being fulfilled before their very eyes. Or were they? And that's the point. Were they being fulfilled? These were moments of great belief for these guys. And remember, this is all fresh. They're seeing it firsthand. There was moments of great belief, and there was doubt. Who was this guy? Was Jesus really the promised one? Could they trust what they were seeing? The rumor mill had erupted, and the crowds were growing. Jesus and his followers are surrounded by people, not just common folk, religious leaders, zealots, Romans. Pretty much everybody was asking, who is this man? Could he truly be the long-awaited promised Messiah, the king of the Jews? And as they watched these miracles, miracles unfold, there had to be moments of belief, great belief, as well as doubt. I can't help but think that question, what kind of man is this, must have been asked more than once. And if not asked out loud, you can bet that each of them were asking it in their hearts. Who is this guy? What kind of man is this, Jesus? Well, this is Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth. But this is Jesus, and at this point, is Jesus the man. And in Matthew 8, he's tired. He's weary. He's exhausted. And so, according to Luke's account in 8.22 of Luke, he pulls his disciples together and he said, let's go to the other side of the lake. And I'll tell you in a sidebar, folks, when Jesus invites you to get on board, get in. It's safe. And let's not forget, not only did Jesus invite these individuals into his boat, he had specifically called them to be his followers. That boat wasn't going down during this storm. But even if it had, God would have still been in control. This morning's sermon is about God, not the circumstance of the storm. Since Jesus is sound asleep in our text this morning, someone else is sailing that boat. Was it Peter? Was it John? We don't know. And frankly, it doesn't matter because when that storm hit, it was all hands on deck. Fishermen 
would have gone into instant muscle memory mode. All the sailing training that they had had as boys would have kicked in. Most of us have heard, seen, or read accounts of shipwrecks at sea, most notably the Titanic, I am king of the world. 908 crew members would have and did frantically try to save that doomed ship, all the while sending out distress signals. So it was with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Storms raging. Lord, save us. You better believe when I thought I was drowning in Pike Lake that my doubt was great. Was I praying? Oh, yeah. I knew I had limited ability, and I knew that I had the ability to swim the really short distance between where I was and the side of the boat was. I knew I had the ability, but I doubted that I could. The disciples doubt? While they likely knew that they had the ability to outrun the storm because they were experienced sailors, they doubted their ability to do so. And to their credit, they called out for help. They called out to Jesus. And here is where the story that we think we know becomes very, very intriguing. Let's consider Mark 4, verses 39 to 41. And it reads like this. Remember, the disciples have called for help. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Did you catch what's happening here? The sailors cannot outrun the storm. They call for help. Jesus speaks. Suddenly the wind stops. There's a great calm. And it's then that the disciples are terrified. As they are confronted with this, who is this man? Let's cut them some slack. Do you remember John the Baptist? How many of you know John the Baptist? Let me see your hand. Yep, pretty much everybody. Uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. John, the one who predicted that someone was coming whose sandals he, John, was unworthy to tie. John, the one who baptized Jesus and saw God's spirit descending like a dove and heard the voice saying, this is my beloved son. Yes, this same John, as he sits in Herod's prison, sends two friends to ask Jesus a question. The question is this, are you the one to come after me or shall we wait for somebody else? And Jesus reminds John of all the miracles that Messiah would accomplish. John the Baptist doubted. 
In the account of the calming of the storm found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the story ends with the disciples asking, who is this man? And in all three Gospels, within a very few pages, Jesus turns that question around. Who do you say that I am? Who is this man? John doesn't include this account of a storm at sea in his gospel. John, the beloved disciple, knew who Jesus was. And I think there's a reason John didn't include this story about Jesus calming the storm. Because by the time John wrote his account, he knew full well who the guy was on board that ship. And he wrote in John 1, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was God. The Word was with God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him. And nothing was created except through Him. Yes, this was the one who in Genesis 1 spoke land and sea into being. The one sleeping on board that fisherman's boat was the one Isaiah knew had measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Who's this man? The psalmist knew and says in Psalm 33, he gathered the oceans into a single place. He says again in Psalm 95, the sea that he made belongs to him. Yeah. Jesus could still the raging waters. He spoke those waters into being. But when Jesus invited the disciples to get into a boat and go to the other side of the lake in Luke 8, his closest friends and followers were still trying to figure out who he was. And they were learning. Slowly, they were learning. Dared they hope? They had seen some miracles. They'd seen some sicknesses healed. But speaking to the wind and sea, the elements, whoa. That's when the big question came. Who really is this Jesus? And they were terrified, beyond scared. Were they in the presence of God? They didn't quit following. Jesus has been inviting individuals to join him on a journey ever since. Who do you say he is? The sea is often used as a metaphor for life. Indeed, a boat is frequently used as a metaphor for life's experiences. Someone might say, I'm, in a, I'm afloat in a sea of trouble. What's threatening to swamp your boat this morning? Jobs? Relationships? The pandemic? Everything that's going around, along politically around the world? Health issues? While the storms of life may threaten us, 
while they may be different from one person to the next, there is one storm that threatens all of us. It's a universal threat. That is sin. And apart from Jesus, sin will definitely sink us. With that idea that I'm on a boat that's sinking, I'm reminded of a, a really old hymn that goes something like this. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. And the chorus rings out, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, Jesus' love brings salvation. And Jesus invites each of us into his lifeboat. He's throwing out a lifeline. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior this morning, I would invite you to come and talk to me or Kevin, John, any of us. Because Jesus promises in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me and I will give you rest. Float in the peace of the assurance of salvation. That Sunday afternoon in Pike Lake, had I simply trusted in what I knew I could do, had I simply trusted and relaxed, I could have floated easily back to the boat, even if I didn't swim. Have you trusted Jesus? Has, has he lifted you safely in his arms? Have you turned to him for salvation? And if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, how's that trust factor going? Isn't it easy? It's it's amazing when I think about this. It's so easy to trust Jesus as our Savior for eternity, yet difficult to trust him to handle our day-to-day. I don't know if you're like me, but most of the time, I'm so focused on my schedule, on my plans, the people around me. I hate to admit it, but most of the time, my trust is in my own ability to steer my own boat. Like it or not, call it whatever you like, we doubt. We take that verse, I can do all things through Christ, and drop the final two words. So it reads, I can do all things. Not so subtly saying, I don't trust Jesus. Yeah, thanks, Lord, for saving me from it for eternity, for pulling me into your lifeboat, Jesus. Now, thank you very much. I'll take the rudder. We all seem to have some faith in Jesus. I've been around church people for a very long time. I've been in prayer meetings and heard prayer requests, heartfelt requests. Pray for sister so-and-so. Her cancer has returned. Pray for junior. He's being called to active military service. Pray for the Smiths. Their marriages, blah, blah, blah. And these are things that definitely we should pray for. We should pray about. We should commit them to the Lord. Life's waters are stormy and deep. But in all those prayer meetings I've been to, I've rarely, if ever, been in a prayer meeting where someone says, pray for me. I don't know who Jesus is anymore, and I'm not sure I trust him any longer. 
And that's exactly where Matthew, Mark, and that's exactly why Matthew, Mark, and Luke include this story in their narrative. From the moment Jesus called his disciples, right on up to the end, the question he asks of them and of us is, who do you say that I am? Or in today's vernacular, who am I to you? Who is Jesus to me this morning? One of the things among many that I've appreciated about this doubt series that we've been following the past few weeks is the fact that by questioning, we can become stronger in our faith. From the moment his followers were called to follow Jesus, his disciples were questioning, who is he? And in turn, Jesus would turn around and ask them, who do you say I am? We learned last week that there were questions, certainly from Thomas, following the crucifixion and resurrection. I mentioned earlier that John, his gospel, doesn't include the calming of the storm narrative. Earlier I read a little bit of John's opening account, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God, that clearly presents Jesus as God in the flesh. And I love the way John's gospel closes. The disciples are back on the water. They're fishing. They're doing what they know how to do. And they see a stranger on the shore. The stranger tells them to cast their nets again. And a huge catch of fish is caught. So big they couldn't haul it on board. Jesus knows. Peter knows it's Jesus. And he hops off the boat, runs to the shore. And then John writes in 21.12, Jesus says, hey guys, come and have some breakfast. And get this. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. I'd remind you, in closing this morning, these guys had walked and talked with Jesus. They had seen him at work and at play. They questioned and they believed. They had doubted. And now, in some of their final moments with Jesus as the resurrected living Savior, they knew who he was. As you think about all these things that, that might be troubling you on our journey through life, all the things that, that come at us from the side, remember this from Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty sea. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The Lord rules over the floodwaters. The Lord reigns as king forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses us with peace. Lord Jesus, 
we come to you this morning. Let our doubts and questions lead us to a better understanding of who you are. With all the storms of life that surround us, whatever we are going through this morning, Father, I pray that the circumstances might be just that, but that those circumstances would lead us to a full understanding that you are Lord, you are God, you've got us in the palm of your hand, and you are not going to let us go. Thank you for being who you are, Lord Jesus. Amen.